Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Robert Evans here, and we'll get to the Vince McMahon episodes in a second. I wanted to let you all know that for the fourth year in a row, we are doing our fundraiser for the Portland Diaper Bank. Uh, Behind the Bastards supporters have been helping to fund the Portland Diaper Bank since 2020 and bought millions of diapers for people who really need them. So if you go to GoFundMe and type in BTB Fundraiser for PDX Diaper Bank, or just type in BTB Fundraiser Diaper Bank GoFundMe into Google, anything like that, uh, you will find it. So please, uh, GoFundMe, BTB Fundraiser for Portland Diaper Bank. Help us raise the money that these people need to get diapers to folks who need them desperately. Hey, everyone. Uh, I'm Robert Evans. I'm, I'm the host of a podcast called Behind the Bastards. And like most of you, I was raised during the 1990s and early 2000s on a steady diet of World War II movies and History Channel documentaries about Hitler. Um, I decided as, a, as an adult to kind of make that into a career and just read weird books about the Nazis and other dictators and talk about them on podcasts. And for the last five years or so, that's gone pretty well. You know, every week I find Find a new terrible person. I read about him. I, I write a script, and the show comes out that you're all duly familiar with. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I decided, after a few years of every now and then getting suggestions from people, to do a bastard uh, who was kind of from the. It's not really a sport, but we'll call it from the sports world. A guy you've probably heard of called Vince McMahon. Uh, he is the owner of, uh, more or less, of the what was once the WWF is now the WWE. And uh, I kind of expected it to be like every other episode of Behind the Bastards. You know, I spend three or four days, I read a book, maybe two, do some research, put together a script. Well, uh, to my surprise, a couple of things happened. One of the things that happened is that um, when I posted that I 
was doing this guy. It got a response unlike anything I've ever gotten. Uh, thousands and thousands of likes on Twitter and uh, wrestling Twitter lit up over it. There were news articles about the fact that I was going to cover this guy, which has literally never happened before. Uh, authors of books about Vince McMahon, uh, including the book, uh, author of the book uh, Ringmaster, which we're going to talk about a little bit, uh, by uh, Abraham Josephine Reisman, hereafter referred to as Josie Reisman, reached out. Uh, people kind of lost their mind about it, and I found myself putting together a script that is currently uh, set to be about as long as the ki script on Henry Kissinger. And that may seem insane for a guy whose primary claim to fame is running a wrestling company, but I assure you it's not. He deserves uh, uh, everything we're writing about him. And to, to kind of help me wrestle this monster Can to I the ground. Can I just say I told you mm -hmm. so, first of all? You did, you did. You tried to warn me, Sophie. Um, was, and For like several years. Yeah. Um, so we're doing this, and uh, the only people I thought could possibly help me wrestle this thing into a manageable form uh, are two of the people I respect most when it comes to talking about shit like this. Uh, Sean Riley, a.k.a. Sean Baby, who you all will remember from the uh, the legendary episodes that we did on uh, famous uh, karate monster. Famous um, punani master. <laughs> punani <laughs> master. Um, <laughs> fucking, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, Sean, hey, how are you doing? Oh, it's good to be back. I've missed uh, you. I, I have I have missed you too, Sean. And um, <laughs> this is uh, this is going to be a special one. And um, I also want to introduce Tom Ryman to the program. Tom's been on a number of episodes. Tom, you're also a big wrestling fan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very excited to be talking about Vince McMahon. I thought I knew everything there was to know about Vince McMahon, but. The, the fact that you have such a volume prepared for us is making me think like, did I not know how much of a ghoul he was? I thought I did. Well, I think he's technically a business goblin. Yeah, he's oh, a business yeah. goblin. Business yeah, business he's a business ghoul. monster. Um, there's a, a lot a going plus on plus four here. business ghoul. <laughs> One of the problems with covering Vince McMahon, it, weirdly enough, the thing that this episode is most similar to is writing about European royalty in the 1800s and 1900s. Because <laughs> sure. all of those like kings, like Napoleon III or Leopold or Victoria, there was like somebody writing about every single second of their life and every decision that they made, right? So right. there's just this, there's so much shit to go through. There's so much detail on everything they ever did. And weirdly enough, it's exactly the same with wrestling. Like, Wrestle, covering wrestling is a lot like covering English or uh, European royalty. I was about to say King, Le King Leopold had like a Dave Meltzer and a Wrestling Observer and mm -hmm. stuff, just <laughs> tracking his every move. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> So that's part of what's going on here. And the other part of what's going on is that, like, as I started learning about Vince, there are all these other wrestlers. Like, wrestling probably has the highest density of, like, monsters of, of, of any, like, uh, entertainment industry sport out there, or at least interesting monsters, right? Um, like, there's just so many fascinating weirdos. Um, yeah, like a casual wrestling story is like, oh, yeah, my friend was cranky, so he tore a guy's eyeball out backstage. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's because it's, it's they're carnies it's it's yeah. a carnival thing and so there's this it's way more hardcore than i think the more casual person realizes yeah the more it, casual fan so every, every probably every episode all of the first couple so far we're going to be going on long digressions where we just talk about other rest, crazy ass stories from wrestling because like oh, i felt I'm like so i was excited. doing a disservice if i didn't um i, I wanted so to get like five andre the giant poop stories we are talking a lot about andre <laughs> yes i love andre the giant uh, he, not a Sweet. bastard a hero by the way just so we're clear for sure 
<laughs> um, a lot, I a lot of indecipherable Ultimate Warrior mm-hmm. monologues. Yeah. Oh, God. Um, I have been watching quite a bit of wrestling. I wanted to start by asking, what is y'all's background uh, with with pro wrestling? Oh, okay. Uh, longtime fan uh, since I was a kid. I grew up, uh, I actually trained in pro wrestling for about a half a year and did oh, wow. uh, three three live shows as a character named Captain Party. <laughs> uh, I was a superpowered frat boy. Uh, I, I did it here in Portland at the Ash Street Saloon. Oh, uh, shit. Yeah. And uh, let's see. I wrote three uh, video games about wrestling, three WWE video games. Uh, gosh, I feel like that's enough. That's Yeah, no, that's that's so much expertise. <laughs> a hell of a credit. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't live up to that. Yeah. <laughs> Tom, now you're on. Now you're well, on. I mean, like, yeah, uh, Tom, fucking, I'll try. Um, so uh, I also grew up watching wrestling, loved it mm-hmm. since I was a kid. Um, I was always more into WWF or WWE mm-hmm. than WCW. Um, I I was a backyard wrestler for several years. Oh, hell yeah! Uh, and and it, I I definitely filmed um, one of my friends throwing another one of my friends off the roof of their house, and then that <laughs> friend doing a flying elbow drop off of the house onto that friend. Uh, that um, I never went off the house, but I had some 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 fun bumps in a in a backyard done to me as well. Um, I, I'm my my friend back home books a local promotion. Um, it's actually how I met my wife. I met my wife what? at a wrestling show. <laughs> I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, no, I've my, known my you friends. and your wife for so long. <laughs> oh, okay. So, 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 so my, my buddy, Jerry Stefanitsis books, uh, uh, independent wrestling promotion called Vanguard championship wrestling VCW in Virginia. And many years ago, they put on a show where they brought in Ric Flair. He was like a big man yeah. they were bringing in for the show. Stolen so it was a as draw. a baby, by the way. I know. I remember that episode. <laughs> Uh, that's nuts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she she was uh, Marina was there uh, set up because one of the wrestlers, his mom ran this like new age sort of healing uh, a store studio and she had a massage parlor in there. Marina's a, a massage therapist. So Marina had a massage chair set up at this wrestling show. <laughs> and that's how I met her. I met my wife at a at a Ric Flair uh, appearance Aww. that my friend put on. <laughs> well, that is that is a happier Ric Flair story than we've gotten lately. Oh yeah, I mean, a lot of bad <laughs> Ric Flair press recently. <laughs> Ric Ric uh, Flair spent the whole day drinking and then tried to stiff somebody else with the bill. That's that's what I yeah. heard from what, that that specific appearance. But <laughs> I I have uh, so I will I will come in and uh, and say I have far less experience than all of you, and I, I think my experience kind of lines up broadly with like most kids in the 90s where like I was never like a huge wrestling guy I played a bunch of different wrestling video games in the late 90s early 2000s when like friends would come over for birthdays uh, Hmm. Robert I also own a WWF superstar stand up arcade unit I I should have included that in my wrestling credentials (laughs) that is awesome yeah yep Oh, I definitely played a bunch of that. Um, I was, I kind of, I had about a, maybe two years where I watched wrestling semi-regularly. Um, this was kind of, I think it's, you'd call it the Attitude Era, right? When Stone Cold Steve Austin was yeah. just one of the big names and mm-hmm. the, yeah. Um, and I was brought in, again, it was one of those things, it wasn't, I didn't, it wasn't kind of like, 
it, it, I, like I made friends with a kid and he was like one of the few kids weird enough to want to hang out with me after school when I moved to this new town and he loved wrestling and old Star Trek right and so he introduced me to both of those things obviously the love of Star Trek stuck around longer but I, I watched wrestling like off and on for a couple of years and you know for years afterwards I'd, I'd play games when you know we were having a birthday party or something with my friends um, from what I have kind of read you know I didn't know this at the time obviously wrestling was just wrestling but 97 and 98, which was sort of more or less, I think, when I was watching wrestling, was kind of smack dab in the middle of, depending on how you count it, the third or fourth big American surge of interest in wrestling. Um, and the second of those to happen under the watchful eye of Vince Vince McMahon. Um, I don't remember a whole lot about that time, except for that my favorite wrestler was The Undertaker. Uh, I'm not sure what, like, uh, sure. Wh- where that puts me. Um, He's a good although pick. people say he was a great kind of like, uh, uh, technical, you know, wrestler, good at backing sure. people up, good at the, good at the, uh, you know, uh, kind of pinch hitter for storylines and stuff. Terrific zombie. Yeah. yeah solid um, zombie. And Vince McMahon, I think it, for most of us who are kind of on the periphery of, of wrestling, who just sort of know it, you know, as a, in broad terms, is one of those figures in American pop culture who's just kind of always been there. Like, I couldn't tell you when I first heard his name, right? He's like Michael Jackson or Arnold Schwarzenegger in that. He's just someone who's always been kind of part of the foundation of pop culture for basically my whole life. Um, And in the decades since I, you know, was kind of into wrestling, he's become a major Republican donor, uh, one of the few close friends of former President Trump. People will say that he was one of the only people Trump would take his phone calls and push other people out of the room. Room when he called while he was president, um, he uh, his wife is uh, also a massive influence. Linda, huge influence on the direction of wrestling, and also a moderately influential person in American politics. She was kind of the only member of Trump's can- cabinet who didn't have a huge scandal during his presidency. Like she was just kind of in there for a while and then bounced, but there was no like, she didn't do a mooch, right? <laughs> like there was no right. big blow up, <laughs> um, which I'm not saying is like praise for her. She is a terrible person, but like she's savvier than a lot of the other people he brought in. Do you do you remember when the mooch went on like a following spree and followed like everyone it cracked? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a fun day. That was, that was weird. That was a weird day. <laughs> what a wild presidency. <laughs> we, just, you know, we just all blew right past it. Um, Um, But Vince is not just, and kind of the reason why we're doing so much focus on him, Vince is not just like a guy who is influential in wrestling. He helped create the foundations in a lot of ways of not just modern right-wing media, but like modern American culture. Um, You know, there's a strong argument that we may not get Donald Trump as president without Vince McMahon and specifically without Trump's time in wrestling, where a lot of people will argue he learned quite a bit. Um, The best book about the life of Vince McMahon is the recently published tome Ringmaster by Abraham Josephine Reisman, again, hereafter referred to as Josie Reisman. Um, Early on in the book, she makes the point that wrestling is more or less inextricable from human civilization. Uh, I didn't know this when I started researching, but the biblical Jacob got the name Israel after a wrestling match, uh, and the word Israel means wrestling with God, at least in one translation. Uh, so that's <laughs> that's kind of sweet. Yeah. You're dropping um, a macho man elbow on God? Hell no, that, yes. That's exactly that, how I picture it. Teach that, God. <laughs> Palestine does translate the leg drop. 
So, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> big, big, big boot leg drop. Yeah. So virtually every culture has some form of wrestling. Uh, and generally, you know, up until the modern era, these were like actual competitions, right? In which, you know, athletes were, you know, the, the end was in doubt. Obviously, like all sports, people, you know, falling on matches for betting purposes has happened for forever. But generally speaking, it was supposed to be an actual competition. Um, and while, you know, that was always a part of wrestling, it also relied heavily on spectacle, right? This has always been a part of it. Now, if we're tracing back the origins of modern pro wrestling, the most direct place to do so is the French Revolution of 1830, better known as the July Revolution. This is the revolution that led to the overthrow of the Bourbon monarchy and its replacement by the House of Orleans. Own. But that's, you know, boring history nerd shit. So I'm just going to quote from wrestling reporter Kyle Dunning here. It is said that during this time, wrestlers were first given nicknames. Also, the tradition of an open challenge being issued to the general public was born. There was commonly a reward of 500 francs to anyone who could knock a wrestler down to the ground. This is where Circus has got the idea from. I wish we still had that. <laughs> this happened organically to me once. Uh, I was at a uh, Mexican... Uh, video game convention and uh there was a wrestling ring in this booth that i was near just a weird little wrestling ring don't know why it was there and uh someone asked me to get up and say something and within two minutes i just sort of organically offered to body slam the biggest person they could find <laughs> and then it, i just did that for like 10 minutes and then one kid got in and it was like okay cool put your phone down i'll body slam you and then he attacked me and I was like, oh, this this must be how shoot fighting got its start. <laughs> uh, how did that go? Uh, he tried to take me down and then we wrestled for a bit. And then I kind of gave him like half a body slam, which he did not want. So he mm -hmm. didn't take it very well. And I, I realized uh, we got to stop doing this. This is, yeah. this is escalating too quickly. <laughs> yeah, this could go really badly. Um, I, I, I always, there were, back in the day, kind of one of the seminal moments in early internet culture was the, uh, there was this director of horrible video game movies named Uva Boll. You, yes. I, I think everyone is fam here is familiar with this story yeah. who got made <laughs> fun of by comedy writers on the internet a lot and so challenged them to a fight, like a televised fight. Um <laughs> And he had been, he had some sort of semi-pro experience, he, right? He was he's like yeah. an amateur boxer, yeah. yeah. Sure. But he's legitimately like a, a more built dude than the average internet comedy writer in the late '90s, early 2000s, for sure. Um, mm -hmm. He did not, if I'm not mistaken, Sean, you you put your hat into the ring, and he did not want anything to do with that. I did. Uh, it's going to take like three or four minutes to tell this full story. <laughs> I want to be fair to, you know, but like yeah. I I used to host a show called Attack the Show back in the day on G4. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I recently came back, but uh, and then left again, but. Uh, Uwe wanted to come on and fight Kevin Pereira and Kevin Pereira's like, dude, that's crazy. But wait, wait, wait. I bet Sean maybe would fight you. And so they, they <laughs> called me. I'm like, fuck yes. Today, tomorrow. I don't care when. And, uh, and then Uwe's Zero people. training. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need to prepare. I've been preparing for this fight my, my whole life. My whole life. <laughs> uh, when I got the call, I did jump some rope. I'm like, all right, all right, let's, let's get into it. Uh, Drank some so, raw eggs. Yeah. yeah. Had a few eggs. And, uh, so, Uwe's people like called me to get my stats and I was like, I gave him my stats. I was, uh, you know, at six, three, I'm like 210 pounds. This is not good news for Uwe Bowl. Uh, they're like, do you know how to fight? I'm like, yeah, I kind of know how to fight. And like, you know what? You know what? Maybe we're not going to do this. Mm -hmm. And uh, I found out later that he basically, I don't think he was like scared, but he was like, 
he's kind of a bully. He just wants to beat up on little nerds. He didn't yeah. want to like film Rocky four. So he's yeah. like, no, I don't, I want to like just beat up your smallest toast. I don't mm-hmm. want to like stand toe to toe with a real man. <laughs> yeah. I want to beat up Richard Kianka. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Man, he beat the shit out of that guy. <laughs> he sure did. He did. He did. It's, and, uh, it's, and we, it's, it's included as DVD extras on one of his movies. So I've, yeah. I've watched uh-huh. all the fights and it's uh, you know, we, we have since learned afterwards that low tax had it coming. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. He was, uh, uh, we don't, that's, that will be we'll, here. We don't need to get into that. Yeah. 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 But, um, so anyway, he did offer me a spot in that. They're like, well, we'll fly you to Canada and we'll do it there. And like suspiciously, they never followed up on that. But, uh, but anyway, that's the story of a Bowl. And then people say like, oh, he ducked me. And I guess he technically did. But, uh, I did, uh, go to the premiere of Postal and, uh, I was like, I think it's only fair that I give him the chance to kick my ass. So I went up cause I'd already like made fun of him in a couple magazines yeah. and I went up and he's like, yeah, I know who you are. And I'm like, okay. So like, so like, are you like pissed? And he's like, no. And then he just very, uh, it carefully explained all of my jokes back to me and how they weren't like real. Okay. And I'm like, yeah, they're, they're fucking jokes. Like he yeah, did, I don't think he understood even a beginning of, of, of what I was trying to do there. I'm like, Beautiful. yeah, I was making fun of you. The, the, the movies are bad. I'm not, what, what the fuck are we doing here? I think, the, um, I think the way, the way they framed it on the DVD extras that I saw was that, Oh, he's, he's fighting critics. So yes, maybe he thought it was like all film criticism and not just like jokes. Mm-hmm. I guess. I mean, I was criticizing his films. He was just like, right. you know, tech, like like in Blood Rain, there's a, a love scene. And I was like, this is obviously directed by a man who's never fucked. And he's like, you know, I've had this, I've had sex before. Like he's like clinically explaining, like <laughs> my jokes. Uh, Uibold <laughs> does seem like the type of dude that would need to clarify. No, wait, 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 wait. I have had sex. Right. It doesn't translate into my work, but I have touched a woman. Yes, I have. I have seen the boobies. <laughs> I do like to think about him like getting in a cage with Ebert, and then Ebert like pulling out like the Baraka weapons from Mortal Kombat, just kind of <laughs> going to town on him, him. <laughs> just fucking swords erupting from yeah, his wrists. Yeah, yeah, that's so how I get, imagine him fighting. You never jump in on Ebert. You got too much anti-air defense. <laughs> so, um, to send you beyond the Valley of the Dolls. This uh, this kind of it's evolution in joke. wrestling, where oh, it, it. It, it starts to become <laughs> something that, like, yeah, it, people like you're doing it out in public. People are like drinking heavily. You've got random folks locally, kind of like showing up to fight, try to knock these wrestlers down. It becomes this circus act. This is what marks kind of the first really clear permanent separation from the various forms of competitive wrestling that had obviously been around for forever to modern wrestling as entertainment. Um, Because obviously when you've got like random local drunks like queuing up to be suplexed, the point is very clearly not measuring grappling skill in a traditional way, right? (laughs) Um, By 1848, circus troops had adopted a new style of wrestling known as first-hand wrestling, uh, better known as Greco-Roman wrestling, which is not the way that the ancient Greeks or Romans wrestled, right? It's just called that. Uh, They had pants on for one. Yeah, they had pants on for one, uh, a lot less abusive in a number of ways. Um, It banned a number of holds below the waist. Uh, It also banned a number of holds that had, like, kept killing people. Um, So they were trying to, like, reduce the body count. Good idea. Uh, Circus troops in Europe quickly adopted but, this new but, style. 
But not mm. eliminate the body count. No, just not, they never get rid of the body count. Let's be very clear about this. I've been, again, I've been possible. watching old wrestling, like from the 80s and early 90s with Oof. like my young friend Garrison. And one of the things we'll do in every match is like Google the names and see kind of who oh, made it the longest. Idea. Yeah, a lot of 49-year-olds, you know, tapping out of life in, in this sport, unfortunately. Oh, yeah, no, um, that's like not a joke. It's just a sad reality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, football is not wildly different. So one of the things that's kind of going on here as they transition to Greco-Roman wrestling is that a lot of things like leg hooks are restricted, which were some of the most effective holds. And so because they can't do a lot of the holds they used to be doing, wrestlers adopted the tactic of throwing each other around the room uh, or around the, um, the, the, you know, the whatever, the square, which is obviously like another link, you know, in the chain to modern pro wrestling. The nicknames, fan challenges, and increasingly elaborate throws that evolved over this period of time made wrestling more fun to watch than it had been before. By the end of the 1800s, the new sport had its first real champion, a guy named Paul Pons. Uh, he was a French his stage name was Colossus, and he became, by some counts, the world champion of Greco-Roman wrestling. That's what Wikipedia calls him, at least. The reality is he won a match sponsored by a magazine, and then like another match sponsored in Russia, neither of which were really world championships, but he just started calling himself the world champion because, like, who's going to argue with you? Right, right. Like, this is b- before the internet. You can just yeah. say things. This is before the internet, and you're giant. You know, right? Like, yeah. No. <laughs> so this Big made lies him... gave us blood sport. I'm, yeah, I'm in favor of that. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. fine. Uh, this made him famous, and he opened a gym for wrestlers and for strongmen. Right, and this is again all kind of very highly tied to the circus. Still, the reality of the situation is that a couple of different countries had wrestling tournaments, and winning basically any one of them would qualify you to call yourself world champion champion if you wanted because like there was no body that was sort of determining who was what was the real world championship in the early 1900s this is kind of the first time that we start to have what you could call a credible world championship um and the guy who wins it for the first time is a dude named george hackenschmidt who is legitimately one of the hardest motherfuckers to ever walk the face of the earth um basically unbeatable from 1901 to 1908 um how lucky how lucky is that name then Hackenschmidt Hackenschmidt it is and like I'm gonna have Sophie show you a picture of this dude in a second here Pons is interesting I'm expecting a real granite faced son of a bitch he is actually kind of in a pre-steroid era he looks like he's on steroids Um, he's got a nice carpet of fur that's uh, no, no, for. no. He he is he is smooth as a fucking oh. waxed dolphin. Oh no, um, that's he's terrifying. Also, he's he's interesting <laughs> because he's kind of an old guy when he becomes. He's thirty four, which is like today even. That's kind of like pushing it, you know, by the standards of sure. athletes in the late eighteen hundreds. Sure, that's like sure, one hundred and three. Yeah, back then he might as well have been ninety seven. <laughs> yeah. Hackenschmidt is a one of the first really shredded guys, as I said, in the modern sense to ever be photographed. And again, it kind of says a lot that he still looks jacked by today's standards, even though there's there's no steroids in this period. There's not I even mean, like a great understanding you, of muscle building. Why do you think they took his picture? Robert? Yeah, <laughs> they were like, like holy oh, this shit, is amazing. Look at this guy. <laughs> it's also he's credited as the inventor of the bench press and the hack squat, at least according to a website called Barbend that repeatedly tried to sell me creatine. Um, I feel like somebody figured out the bench press before that. Yeah. It's not exactly <laughs> we super. Are, I found another website that says he definitely didn't create the bench press, although I will say that website also tried to sell me creatine, mm. Tom. So. 
So how much creatine do you have? So how much creatine did you get? Clearly not enough, according to these two websites. Did you did you buy enough creatine to invent the bench bench press? Uh, not not yet. Um, but I'm I'm hoping I bought enough creatine to determine which website is more credible. Like whatever, yeah, whatever whichever creatine pushes my bench up more in like mm-hmm. a three week period, that's the website I'll choose to believe. This is how um, we will measure all things from now on. <laughs> Sophie, I want you to show them. Like Hack and Schmidt looks like a crude dish ca- discount action figure from a grocery store toy aisle oh hell yeah <laughs> like, oh look this at guy that looks dude. like he looks yeah. awesome yeah totally natty you have to assume because it's 1908 <laughs> like, yeah. no I don't neck think, yeah absolutely yeah, just, no neck he is necklace <laughs> he cannot li- put his arms down at his he side can't put his arms down to he his side he looks cannot put his he arms looks like down. a he-man yeah and like look at those thighs this motherfucker never skipped a leg day we can say that with a degree of certainty <laughs> Uh, it's interesting looking loafers, at loafers, black yeah. socks. Yeah, incredible. Look. Oh hell yeah! He's <laughs> he's got the socks pulled up yeah. too. He looks like like he a does professor. Look amazing. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, this dude is like it's like reminding me of like the difference between like when like Christopher Reeve or like Michael Keaton played superheroes, mm-hmm. and then like what people yeah. who play superheroes look like nowadays. Like this guy's definitely jacked, yeah. but like he's not Hugh Jackman in the Wolverine. Jacked. No, 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 like, no. No, like it's, it's Hugh Jackman, this, an X-Men Jack. Yeah. 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 Although he is a wide shouldered man. He's so wide. Yeah. He is a fascinating looking fellow. Um, so again, it, it, uh, basically none of the creatine websites disagree that he invented the hack squat. So I guess we have to give him that, uh, a different website that tried to sell me workout powders did argue that he didn't invent the bench press. And that article was written by a guy named Roger Rock Lockridge. So I do think we have to trust it because that's quite a name. Sweet name. Um, yeah. So Hackenschmidt yeah. racked up he, he, more. He oh, invented sorry. something. He invented yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. Is um, the rock in quotes? Yeah. The rock is in quotes. Absolutely. Okay. I hope you could hear them. Um, So Hackenschmidt racked up more than 3,000 victories during his career. A lot of them were during, he has a, there's a 40-day wrestling tournament that he wins in 1900. Um, Yeah, so this guy, you have to assume pretty good endurance. Um, But he doesn't really earn a a place of promise in the history books until 1905 when he travels to the United States. Now, in the U.S. and the U.K., obviously like in Europe, as we've been talking about, Greco-Roman wrestling is the big thing. In the U.S. and the U.K., it's still a thing, but it's kind of less favored than something called catch-as-catch-can wrestling, which is a combination of several smaller variants of wrestling rules that allows leg hooks, but also emphasizes submissions and mat wrestling. Uh, This goes viral in the U.S. because it made it particularly easy to allow challenges from members of the public at big outdoor events. Americans are drunk and love to fight, so you can't not have that, but also you don't want either to kill these guys or for them to seriously hurt your wrestlers. And so submission holds are something that wrestlers can train on and can kind of guarantee that they can win without, like, murdering a suburban dad by shattering his spine. <laughs> yeah. I'm just trying to picture the, the first poor son of a bitch that got put into, like, a figure four. Yeah. You would have, <laughs> you would have no context for that. Yeah, you're just no. like, what no. is happening? Is this a spell? Mm-mm. No, it's like a medieval peasant eating Cheetos. It just blows yeah. your mind. You, you would just you, you would just have a stroke and die. Like you wouldn't be able to wrap your mind around whatever mm-hmm. devilry was being Absol- done to your absolutely legs. Absolutely not. Point. Yeah. No. No. This was still the a point. Of times I've gone back to my date after losing to a figure four leg lock. Like, oh, sorry, honey. I just 
I thought I had him that time. <laughs> that would have been my whole life back then. Mm-hmm. Just going out on dates. Like, oh, sorry, I'm going to go get my ass kicked, honey. <laughs> like, stop it. Come back to our date. You promised me you wouldn't do this anymore. Made my whole life. The, uh, the the evolution. You know he's of- just gonna wrap your legs up again. I got it this time. I'll turn him. I'll turn him over. If I can flip him over so we're on our bellies, I've reversed the figure four. You never listen to me. You think my ideas are stupid. <laughs> I'm imagining like early OSS men watching like a wrestling match and going, we have to, we have to figure this out. We have to put money into this. This is how we beat the Krauts. We got to crack this nut. Yeah. They've got like a stone cold stunner locked up underneath the Pentagon. Like we can't let this out. It's like the plague in the stand. This gets out. Anything could happen. I've always thought you could measure uh, how good a lover a man is by how well he takes a stunner, like how mm-hmm. giving he is as a lover by how yeah. much he gets obliterated by the Stone Cold Stunner, which means that <laughs> The Rock does like a full backflip. I'm yeah. saying on record, I, I think The Rock is a very giving lover. It's, yeah. I mean, honestly, Sean, it's The Rock or Vince. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Vince yeah. sort of does like a weird like paralytic quiver. Like, he used to do it better. He used to do it better yeah. before he blew his knees up. So Hackenschmidt's style and size made him pretty unstoppable in the U.S. for a time. He very quickly defeated the American champion of the day, a guy named Tom Jenkins, uh, in what was not a particularly hard match. Uh, Hackenschmidt was so dominant that a wrestling promoter named Charles Cochran took him aside and was like, hey, man, you can make a lot more money if you, like, fuck around with your opponents a little. Like, taunt them, toy with them, give people a show instead of just, like, beating the absolute piss out of them. Uh, in an article for E-Wrestling News, Kyle Dunning writes, in other words, he wanted to fake the contests to make them more competitive because the marks would keep coming back if they thought he was beatable. With this business philosophy, catch wrestling soon transitioned to become professional wrestling, and many other countries adopted the same, knowing there was more money to be made predetermining bouts for entertainment value. It all relied on keeping to kayfabe that wrestling remained a sport in the eyes of the public now again it's not as so this is kind of like flattening it a little bit obviously other people other promoters had been doing wrestling matches where the uh the ending was sort of settled ahead of time but that was not always the case and it was also a thing where like a lot of time in this day even if you were supposed to be setting up who's going to win ahead of time it would still like either egos would get in the way or something and like people would actually just wind up fighting right sure um like this was a lot more common back then. Um, I should also note that the idea in this period that a major sporting event might be determined by something other than legitimate contest was not unique to wrestling. In early 1919, the Chicago White Sox conspired to lose that year's fall classic to the Cincinnati Reds. Members of the White Sox approached a group of gamblers and presented them with an opportunity to make a shitload of money. Uh, This did not go well. There's a huge grand jury investigation. Uh, There's a trial, and Major League Sports Gambling is banned until we realize that it was stopping a lot of terrible people from making money. This took about a hundred years. So, uh, the, 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 the fallout from this is significant. Um, yeah. Anyway, Hackenschmidt, uh, basically unstoppable in the U.S. until he winds up wrestling a guy named Frank Gotch. Gotch is an American who just was famous for having pretty incredible endurance. Um, It's unclear to me if their big match is fixed in one way, Um, but from what I've read, neither man is able to force the other into a clear submission for more than two hours. Um, (laughs) And that is a huge... So for for some perspective, in modern wrestling, one of the most famous matches of all time is an hour-long match between Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart. Uh, These are two of like the best 
technical wrestlers of their day. They're obviously, this is not, they're not competing in the traditional sense, but if you yeah. watch what they're doing, it's amazing that they kept up that level of energy it's a, it, for an hour. An, it's an incredible yeah. match. Yeah. yeah, they are They are going, it is insane yeah. shit. There um, was an MMA of, match that went 90 minutes in yeah. the year 2000. That was Kazushi Sakuraba versus Hoist Gracie. Yeah. So, and, uh, uh, yeah. Oh, I love Sakuraba. He's the best. Yeah, the, great, I, I, the freaking Gracie Hunter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think the point I'm making is that Hackenschmidt and Gotch must have been something to see. Two hours yeah. is still a significant if, fucking match. If, yeah. if, if, if Gotch's finishing move wasn't called the Gotcha, I don't mm-hmm. know what he's doing in the carny business. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I feel like I don't know what we're doing as a culture if that wasn't the case. But I haven't found evidence of it, Tom. So <laughs> I'm, I apologize on behalf of America. Now, gotcha nuts. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so wrestling's charming right along uh, early 1900s but then you get that whole world war thing it disrupts the industry um, obviously the kind of wrestling you know age men eventually do come back afterwards but the age that follows world war one is a little more jaded and one of the things this means is that a larger and larger number of wrestling fans start to doubt whether or not wrestling is real. The sport languished, and a shady, as a kind of shady sideshow entertainment for drunks and people from New Jersey until the 1920s. In the early 20s, a wrestler named Ed Lewis uh, is hooked up by his trainer, who'd also trained Frank Gotch, with a fella named Toots Mond. Now... <laughs> <laughs> Toots Mond these comes from a fucking names, man. <laughs> Toots Mob uh, these, Mond. All, these all sound like old timey baseball off, players. Sophie, will you look up a picture of Toots Mond? They need to sure. see him. But second, I need to describe this man to you. Toots Mond is in the early 1920s considered one of the most out of control gamblers in the entire country in the oh, 20s like hell he yeah. is a mobbed up dude who other mobbed up dudes are like this motherfucker gambles too much and number two <laughs> Tootsmond Toots is a dude who other men in the 20s are like this guy drinks quite a lot <laughs> like it is if it's probable no one on earth could no could drink with this toots. guy today. I, I'm really I'm really excited to share my screen. Yeah, you gotta show you oh, gotta man. show no, these fuckers toots mom. I can't I can't wait to see this. I can't wait to see this hero. Yeah. Are you ready? Yeah. Ready. This guy who other mobsters were like, God damn. Look at this, look extreme. at this man. Holy he shit. He looks like a giant baby. Yeah, this is an unfinished clone. Yeah. He's uh, not he's definitely not done. PR dummy. Yeah, they yeah. paint those nipples on him every morning so people don't get suspicious. <laughs> he looks. I mean, he looks. Uh, wow. Yeah, two sixty. Yeah, six feet tall, two sixty. I would just put him at three feet tall from these. Yeah, pictures. he is a slab of meat. Look he at this dude. A profoundly unsettling man, and I'm only saying that because he's been dead for decades. Because I, I would be yeah. frightened looks, to well, make these comments if he were alive. You know, uh, he looks like in the face, yeah. not so much his build, but in the face, he looks like Brian Urlacher. Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say he he looks like a Cabbage Patch kid, but yeah. (laughs) Brian Urlacher looks like a Cabbage Patch. He does have, yeah, (laughs) resting Cabbage Patch energy. So Toots is in addition uh, to being... Let me make it clear. They they call him Toots because of his train conductor hat. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Um, Toots is also a wrestler, uh, and so he acted as Ed Lewis's sparring partner, trainer, and security man. Uh, Together, the two worked out a series of new holds and innovative wrestling tactics. They also would wrestle each other 
together in the ring sometime during matches. Uh, these were, you know, obviously they had set these matches ahead of time. Um, both of these guys are pretty technically skilled. So Toots is the kind of guy that like Ed can trust and they can trust each other to do a lot of these kind of like throws so, and tosses and not murder each other and uh, put together you, a you, choreographed spectacle, right? If you yeah. can't trust Toots... You can't trust toots. Whom can you trust? Who who wants to stay in this world if you can't trust the the hard drinking, gambling out of control (laughs) mobster wrestler? (laughs) So toots and Lewis over time develop a new style of wrestling, and it's a hybrid of Greco-Roman, catch-as-catch-can, and kind of circus shit, which they call slam-bang Western-style wrestling. And this is kind of the most direct precursor to modern pro wrestling. Um, In a different article for E-Wrestling News, Kyle Dunning writes, the newly formed trio used their connections to persuade wrestlers from around the country to join their new promotions, so they no longer had to be controlled by others. Toots began forming what we would later know as sports entertainment, but the wrestlers had to be in on keeping it secret from the public. This new style of wrestling would incorporate elements from boxing, Greco-Roman, freestyle, lumber camp fighting, and theater. As traditional wrestling could go on for several hours, they implemented time limits to ensure matches would not bore the audience. They also introduced the concept of tag team wrestling, which had seldom been used before. Within six months, they had taken over the wrestling scene and were taking bookings in major sports venues instead of back alley halls and other small places. This um, just sounds like making love. Um, lumber yeah. camp brawls. I was about to say, yeah, I was about to say, excuse me, lumber is, camp brawls? Yeah, <laughs> yeah this yeah, is this a is major, specifically up in the Pacific Northwest, a major form of entertainment where like you just go out and watch lumber camp guys beat the piss out of each other. <laughs> <laughs> they are, they are, they are very jacked and they have no money. Uh, they are Maybe all alcoholics. They will fight for hard liquor. <laughs> Maybe they'll fight a bear, maybe yeah. a tree. I don't know. They don't care. They don't even know they'll the check difference. Check it out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you know who else will fight for your amusement. <laughs> to the death if you want, you know? You slip them a 20. The products and services that support this feel- contest. Huge <laughs> fans of blood sports. <laughs> yeah, they don't give a shit. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. My favorite spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. Wow, how have I been living like this? It's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless, when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. Wow, how have I been affording this? It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. Say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills, and unexpected overages. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans starting at 15 bucks a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. 
Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash behind. That's mintmobile.com slash behind. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash behind. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ah, we're back. So, you know, lumber camp fighting, all this kind of stuff fuses together uh, to make uh, uh, slam bang Western style wrestling with, with to- just, which Toots and Ed create. Um, I just I love that somebody saw lumber camp fighting and was like, this is close. America needs could, this, but <laughs> it's it could not be quite bigger. there. Not this quite needs there. to be on a national stage. Yeah. If this had shiny panties, mm-hmm. a couple of capes. <laughs> mm-hmm. And really throwing each other weird, wild distances, surprising yeah. air. That's what we need here. And I got a fancy guy with a mm. monocle. Yeah. <laughs> More guys in suits. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's not nearly enough racist caricatures. No one's dressed as a shake. So for one thing, we're going to have to fix that. Yeah, we got to fix that quotient right now. <laughs> Uh, it is worth noting that around the same time, the late 1920s and early 30s, other people were innovating wrestling too, obviously. Like, this is not a, a, a two-person thing. Um, among other uh, innovations in this time, the flying tackle and the dropkick are invented, uh, which I I love to think of the first man, like the Wright brothers of dropkicks. <laughs> they keep failing at it. Like, they're about to, like, leave for the day. And then one more time. Just let me try one more time. I, I know I can do it with both feet. <laughs> yeah. And get both legs up. Can you imagine seeing that for the first? Mm-hmm. It's like seeing the first the figure drop four kick? for the first time. Oh my time. god! Like, yeah. Oh shit! Yeah. Is he Icarus? Yeah, yeah. I think the next thing that will be like that is when they finally clone a mammoth. Like, my God, look at it! Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the timeline of human history is split at the drop kick. I'm gonna drop kick it. Yeah. I'm gonna drop and kick that mammoth right in the fucking snout. Oppenheimer Cloning watching the first animals. drop kick. <laughs> now I have become death. Destroyer yeah. <laughs> of worlds. <laughs> that's all. That's all. Uh, that's all the bomb is. Yeah, that's all mm-hmm. fission is. It's, it's mm-hmm. atoms drop kicking each other. Yeah. It's a. It's a. It's an evolution of the drop kick. 
So Billy Sandow would test new recruits uh, for kind of this wrestling business that they're building in his own private ring, while Toots would work with them on their finishing sequences. Um, This kind of period is when they invent the concept of wrestling having a go-home sequence, which is a commonplace today, but back then it was new and exciting to fans. Um, Toots also introduced the concept of the no contest and double count out, which moves wrestling away from kind of the old school competitive roots and creates a lot of possibilities for like storytelling, right? For ways that you can kind of end matches and stuff without people getting beat up too bad. And uh, uh, that, you know, opens up possibilities for all sorts of storylines, a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and it's it's kind of worth noting just in terms of how innovative these guys are. Modern wrestling is still a very similar to what Toots and his his buddies create. And these three guys become known as the Gold Dust Trio, I think because of how much fucking money they make. And they basically are kind of the most direct progenitors of the modern pro wrestling industry. Um, they do a lot of fights in burlesque theaters, sideshows, and they kind of move on in a, really a fairly short span of time because of how much interest there is to stadiums and other massive, like, respectable venues. And wrestling for the first time spreads across the United States States, not as just like a thing people did, but as a semi-organized business in which there's quite a lot of money. Um, Now, Toots is the enforcer, in addition to training people and stuff. He and another guy, John Pasek, would beat the shit out of any wrestlers who tried to go into business for themselves. Um, (laughs) This earned them the nickname Hookers. That's what they're called for doing this. Uh, I'm not really certain why. Um, But but yeah, that's that's the old, that old Hooker Toots! (laughs) I love that. I love that Toots just applied his mob training Mm -hmm. to this. Mm -hmm. It's like somebody else trying to muscle in your territory. (laughs) Fucking break his legs. There's not a problem that Toots cannot solve with a fucking drop kick. (laughs) (laughs) So that's a lumber brawl double threat when you can beat a guy in the ring and beat a guy out of the ring. That's uh, that's the total package. Just Toots walking into work. He's got like a briefcase and inside of it is just like a stump. (laughs) (laughs) So the trio eventually broke apart due to a power struggle, but wrestling was here to stay, and for a time, its shady reputation kept it down. Madison Square Garden initially refused to host wrestling events through the 1940s. Uh, What finally changes this is that Toots teams up with Bastards Pod alumni Bernard McFadden, who kind of invented physical culture in the United States. He was a big magazine baron, one of the guys who sort of started the modern, like, health and supplement industry, and he provides Toots with the financial backing to expand this business, and because he's got connections, he convinces Madison Square Garden to start hosting wrestling events. Uh, in 1948, the first garden wrestling exhibition was held. It basically always sells out. It is a huge business for them. Uh, in that first match, a guy named Gorgeous George defeats a guy named Ernie Dusek. Um, that same year sees another seminal moment in pro wrestling history. By that point, wrestling has grown from being the business of a number of shady carny promoters and disgraced boxers to a network of promoters and what you might call like uh, cartel leaders who ran wrestling in different cities and regions and generally hated each other. But in July, uh, on July 14th, 1948, several of these dudes gather together at a hotel in Waterloo, Iowa to talk. And I'm going to quote now from a book called Sex, Lies, and Headlocks. 
Uh, right around the room were P.L. Pinky... The, you're going to love these nicknames, Tom. Yeah. P.L. Oh, Pinky yeah. George, a former bantamweight fighter who ran all the shows mm. out of Des Moines. Al Haft, who liked to book big oh. games names in Columbus, but couldn't keep them for long because he was notoriously cheap. Orville Brown, a 250-pound brawler from Kansas City. Max Clayton, a genial mm. Omaha businessman who played only $25 for a main event, but made up for it by buying his favorite wrestlers straight whiskey and steaks. And Stone, Tony Stetcher, who ran the Minneapolis Territory while managing his brother Joe, a three-time world champion who could dent a sack of grain with his thighs. Hell yeah. <laughs> At least, what what an amazing who's, thing on a CV. Who could not? What's it? Yeah. Dent a sack of grain with grain your with thighs? thighs? I, we must what be missing something. What a weird yeah. metric. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like most people could, but maybe grain was different then. Right. Um, maybe what, maybe, maybe a definition of bag. Is like, <laughs> Just sit I on the like, grain. <laughs> 60 percent of those guys have killed somebody with a wrench oh yeah absolutely M- like but only 30 percent like of them remember it <laughs> right I, <laughs> I love how like some of them are like oh this guy's the toughest guy in the world and then one guy's like i guess he can kind of you can tell he's been sitting on grain yeah he and does a lot of like, grains in real real grain city. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> some right. real dubious honors in the crew is yeah. what i'm saying so the dude who calls all these guys together in 1948 to talk is a man, a 42-year-old guy. He's a former sports writer named Sam Muchnik. Sam had lost his job as a sports writer covering baseball because his newspaper collapsed, uh, a thing none of us can identify with. Um, oh, yeah, what is that like? Can't picture that. Yeah. Uh, he decided to deal with this trauma by starting to work for a wrestling baron and then becoming one himself. Uh, he rises to prominence fairly quickly. And, uh, you know, he takes a little break to do some World War II stuff. But when he gets back, he finds himself frustrated by the fact that wrestling is kind of being held back by this vicious pack of promoters who are, they're always fighting and bribing each other uh, to, like, steal each other's wrestlers. And this is getting in the way of both their profits and expanding the business. So he gets all these guys to together these real shady motherfuckers and he's like what if we set up rules together as the bosses of these different kind of syndicates to set up prices to like fix wages to blacklist wrestlers who go into business for themselves now this is very illegal they are violating the shit out of the sherman antitrust act but these guys are all criminals right these this is not the first right. law these people have broken this is, <laughs> this is mob shit this is yeah. classic mob shit. yeah this is very classic <laughs> mob shit and these guys all have a shitload of money so they figure they can bribe whoever they need to bribe he gets all these guys at the President Hotel to agree to his idea, which amounts to something like the only union pro wrestling would ever see. And of course, it is a union of owners. Um, yeah. This goes on to become the National Wrestling Alliance. Interesting fact, there's another NWA that's like a wrestling kind of alliance that predates this NWA. Um, but yeah, it's not a it's not a, 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 a kind of big deal in the history. So anyway, interesting stuff. Um so they all agree on this. They form the NWA, this big cartel. The last holdout to it is uh, Muchnik's former friend and bitter rival, a guy named Lou Thez. Uh, Thez oh. eventually agreed to merge outfits with Muchnik and join the cartel. And Muchnik is like, okay, but if we do that, you got to agree to lose a title match to this wrestler the NWA likes called Orville Brown, right? Um, so this match never happens. Brown and his business partner, 
partner, another wrestler that he'd fought that night, were like driving home from the match. They're like friends, but they're supposed to be enemies. And they happen to hit an 18-wheeler. They may have been hammered uh, and very nearly die. This is a problem for several reasons, because Brown and his partner are supposed to be hated enemies. And the fact that they're riding together in the same car creates a scandal. I think they get fired for this. Uh, It threatens to undo the fragile bonds of belief that made wrestling what it was. Um, so yeah, I, yeah. I think later on a sim, a similar thing happens to Ric Flair. He's in a plane crash with a guy yeah. he's feuding with, and they had to pretend like they weren't traveling together. Yeah, I want to actually talk about this a little bit because, like, it's now fairly well known that within the wrestling world, this kind of mix of lies and theater to create this illusion of a contest is known as kayfabe. Right? Um, there's debate over where the uh, the term comes from. Sex lies and headlocks kind of credits it to turn of the century carnivals, where these you know these wrestlers who would take on random challengers, which they called marks from the crowd, um, and like would wrestle them and stuff. Uh, you know, they can't, uh, you know, in that case, they generally know what they're doing because they have a lot more experience. But when they're wrestling each other, they can't go as hard as they otherwise might because one of them will get hurt if they do. So they rigged the matches in order to avoid getting seriously injured. Um, and they have to, in order to like kind of set this stuff up, they have to develop a secret language that lets them kind of plan stuff out um, in public without making it clear to others what they're doing, which is this kind of pig Latin dialect called Carney. Um, so one theory about where kayfabe comes from is that it's just a term from this little language that they made up. Um, initially, to initially, it's kind of a term for like, shut the fuck up. There's like marks watching, right? Like that's the initial meaning of kayfabe. But over time, it just becomes a metaphor for like, don't let anyone on on what's really happening. Now, we don't actually know that that's the origin of kayfabe. Nobody is certain where it comes from. But throughout the middle of the 20th century, this kind of whole language grows up around pro wrestling, as Josie Reisman describes. For nearly a century, this illusion was maintained at all costs in a kind of industry omerta. A heel and a face who were sworn kayfabe enemies couldn't be seen drinking together in their off hours. A wrestler billed as Iranian couldn't be known to be Italian. Even wrestlers themselves sometimes had trouble keeping track of what was kayfabe and what was not. So they developed two more terms. A work was anything that was kayfabe, and anything that was real was a shoot. Now, a couple of other notes here. A heel is a bad guy, right? Like in wrestling, they're generally the guy, especially in this period, they're nearly always supposed to lose, right? Um, Meanwhile, a face, which stands for baby face, is like a good guy, right? There's generally the people who are supposed to win in this period. That's going to change a lot over time. Eventually, you get to the point where like heels and faces kind of move up and down, and there's also becomes this kind of third category, and a lot of times the heels win because they're the people that like the fans like the most, but in this period, of time it's a lot simpler right um well there was a hulk hogan's kind of a notorious liar but like in his book he had a story about like he had a gun that belonged to one of the savage samoans and then they all had to go to jail because the savage samoans wouldn't talk in front of the police because they're the wrestlers were supposed to be like these caveman monsters that didn't speak english so they could have like cleared up the misunderstanding about the gun, but they, to, to keep I've, the kayfabe, they all went to jail instead. And I'm like, there's no way any of it's true, but like this is yeah. what Hulk Hogan said. I don't, I don't know. I've heard that story from other sources than Hulk Hogan. Right. I don't know that like you, you are, Sean, you are very correct. Hulk Hogan is a famous liar. There he are sure stories is. that crazy that we're about to talk about. Okay. So st- stuff on that <laughs> level and even wilder does occur. And, um, uh, I, I remember reading about how uh, Ric Flair's wife didn't know it was fake until like yeah. deep 
into the 90s. No, no. It, it, <laughs> there's a lot of that going on. Uh, I do want to note before we get into some of these stories, not all wrestling fans are marks. Overtime professionals split them up into smarts and marks. A smart is somebody who gets that like this is not real, right? These giant men throwing each other across the room are engaged in a performance. This is not really right. fighting. Uh, Reisman and other historians of wrestling, like kind of traditionally the assumption was there's only a few smarts. Most people are marks. Reisman increasingly and other historians of wrestling tend to suspect that actually like most fans, particularly most adult fans over time are smarts. They're all kind of, it's sort of like Santa Claus, right? At, you know, there's a period of time where you kind of believe that it's, it's a real sport and then you get older, you see something that breaks the illusion. Kind of famously, Hulk Hogan, who again, take with a grain of salt, he's, he claims to have been a believer as a young adult, like to have been totally bought into it until one day as he's sort of like watching a match, he sees two wrestlers strategizing beforehand and has this like horrifying realization that the game is rigged. <laughs> um, I'd be so embarrassed to tell that story yeah. across Hulk Hogan. Yeah. I might so believe it because he's not a smart man. Let's be very clear about the Hulkster. <laughs> um, I don't know what you mean, dude. <laughs> Reisman also notes that while most fans were probably savvy enough to parse out the truth eventually, wrestlers for decades lived in mortal fear of breaking kayfabe because managers and promoters drilled into their crews that this lie is the only thing keeping the interest in wrestling and thus their job alive, right? This is deadly serious to the industry, right? Wrestlers are kind of divided into, again, you know, you've got your heels and your baby faces and stuff. Um, one of the most interesting realities of um, early wrestling is, is again, kind of how seriously this is taken. You know, even though maybe most fans eventually figure it out, a lot of fans never do. Um, some of this is because guys like Muchnik de- would demand that their heel and face wrestlers never travel together, never act friendly together in any way. You know, if wrestlers suffered injuries in their regular life or got arrested and charged with crimes, which happened constantly, this would get worked into storylines on the fly. My favorite example of this stemmed from the 1983 arrest of Kerry Von Erich, uh, and we will be talking about the Von Erich family in a little bit, but I want to read a quote from the book. (laughs) Dark dark story. (laughs) That's what we're ending on. But I want to read a book, uh, a quote from the book Wrestling Babylon by Irv Muchnik right now. Carrie and his wife were returning from their honeymoon in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, when U.S. customs agents, during a routine inspection, caught him with 18 unmarked tablets in his right front pocket. Inside the crotch of his pants was a plastic bag containing an assortment of nearly 300 other pills, including codeine, diazepam, librium, and possibly percodan, 10 grams of marijuana, and 6.5 grams of blue and white powder. The Von Erichs yeah, wove the ensuing... <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a pretty good list of shit. <laughs> the Von Erichs wove the ensuing publicity into the world-class TV storyline, vaguely suggesting that Carrie had been framed by the Freebirds, their arch-rivals. 18 months oh, later, yeah. after behind-the-scenes maneuvering, the charges were dropped by the Tarrant County District Attorney. Um, very fun story. So... <laughs> The wrestlers Rock Roll Express in this Hit period. These drugs in my butthole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. With, um, oh, what's his name? Michael... Oh, shit. I forget his name. The guy from... Um... Never mind. It doesn't matter. <laughs> so um michael bolton you're thinking of michael bolton. Yeah. yes i'm thinking of michael bolton aren't we all always i am 
So wrestlers didn't just kind of keep the fans, you know, try to keep this shit up for the fans. They also kept their own families uh, in the dark, (laughs) maintaining the lie that the matches they were in were real competitions and that their fights with other wrestlers were real. This sometimes caused dangerous situations. An early heel named Mario Galinto was so hated that his wife feared for his life. And so she started showing up at matches with a loaded handgun to protect him from his rivals. And she would pull it on them and stuff. Like she would threaten them with it during matches. And eventually promoters had to sit down with Mario and were like, you have to tell your wife the truth. She is going to murder someone on television. Yeah. Like this is a serious problem for us. You need to stop marrying yeah. six-year-olds. Yeah. <laughs> she was blasts Paul Bearer or some <laughs> shit. Right. She just empties oh. a 38 into him oh. on fucking uh, channel 38. Cannot yeah. kill she didn't when he tells her the, the truth allegedly she doesn't speak to him for three days oh <laughs> so my god just destroys I, I her that's kind of humiliating mm-hmm. but also right. like just infuriating like you mm-hmm. lied to me you also, lied to I'm me so stupid about wrestling yeah. <laughs> well i mean uh, she was in such fear for him that she was carrying a loaded gun mm-hmm. to his matches and he was letting her continue to do yeah. this he was like yeah so, honey i get it you're doing a reasonable thing <laughs> they both missed a lot of red flags I yeah think. Yeah, this yeah. is maybe communication wasn't their strong suit as a couple, you know? That's <laughs> that's possible. Um, it is, to be fair to her, it was super common for wrestlers to get assaulted and injured by fans. Uh, women in particular habit, had a habit of jabbing heels with hat pins on like their way up to the ring and stuff. Uh, <laughs> men, meanwhile, tended to throw rocks and bottles at them. Uh, in one South Carolina match, a 78-year-old man with a knife stabbed Al Rogowski so bad that he needed more than 100 stitches. Now, oh my God. Al is a hard son of a bitch, so he refuses to go to a hospital. He drives himself back to his house. He finds someone there to sew him up, and then he wrestles the very next day. Because <laughs> I, I, yeah, I tell you, you why wrestlers don't have any health insurance. <laughs> they right. sure don't, Tom. They are better <laughs> paid if, back then. And he, um, and if he doesn't get any sick time yeah. either, so if he doesn't wrestle the yeah. next day, he doesn't make money, yeah. so it's like fucking glue me up, I'm going out yeah. there. <laughs> I should note, it is generally agreed upon by the historians I'm reading, the Money's better back then than it is now by comparison. Like these guys are making better livings than like modern wrestlers often tend to, um, which is kind of interesting to me. Um, Obviously that does, you know, it's, it's different around the country. That's not everywhere, but broadly speaking, it's easier to make an okay living then as a wrestler than it is today. A lot of people will argue. You got stabbed more often. You did get stabbed more often for an example of that. Sean, Rowdy Roddy Piper claims to have been stabbed three times by fans who thought he was an actual <laughs> bad guy. <laughs> I don't. If, I don't doubt it, man. Yeah, people, no, that's true. He he used to drive people crazy. No, they were. He was because he's he was he's a genius. He's an incredible yeah, actor. He's very great. very he's very great. talented at what he did. But also, like just looking at Rowdy Roddy Piper, you have to be either ready to die or the drunkest I anyone has ever been to be willing to attempt to stab that man because he was a fucking yeah. monster. <laughs> and also, his whole gimmick was that he was insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So. God, I love Roddy Piper. Um, You know... Uh, Enough to stab him? Yeah, I, I would, I would, I would Three stab times? him if Just it, would, if it meant he flesh. was back again. If we got one more episode of Always Sunny in Philadelphia with him playing yeah. the maniac. The maniac. <laughs> <laughs> what an absolute hero. You know what? During this next ad break, go watch the movie They Live, starring Rowdy Roddy Piper. Uh, just a champion. 
The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back! Uh, I watched so, the entire They Live. We did, And we that did. Always Sunny episode. And that Always Sunny episode. Um, both works of incredible art. So... Given all of this, it probably won't surprise you to hear that even in the pre-steroid days, wrestlers often lived difficult lives. One of the first great modern wrestlers was a guy named Gorgeous George. Uh, he was the son of a house painter. He played a narcissistic healer, heel who was one of the first big popular TV wrestlers. Uh, he would prance around the ring in a fur robe. Uh, he was kind of a little like queer coded kind of bad guy thing, right? This is, you know, the 60s. Uh, he gouged eyes. He flirted with audience members and he just like chewed the fuck out of the scenery. George is a huge hit in like the 50s and 
kind of early 60s. But by the time he retires in 1962, the heavy drinking that came with his career field, because uh, I mean, it's part of just what these guys do to deal with the pain, because they're, you know, it's not easy on your body, had destroyed his health. Uh, when he retires, he like uses the money he has to start a bar in Van Nuys, but his medical bills quickly force him to sell it. In 1963, after a night of bumming drinks from the bartender in the bar he used to own, he dropped dead from a heart attack. He was 48 years old. Um, in Sects, Lies, and Headlocks, the authors note, the wrestlers he'd once worked with passed around a hat to help bury him in an orchid-colored casket, beside which his last girlfriend, a stripper, collapsed crying. It is a very wrestling funeral. Um, he is not the only guy with a story like this. Uh, I know, yeah. That it's is, a bummer. That is yeah. dark. I mean, not that his girlfriend is a stripper, that's whatever, but just like, this is like, his story is not uncommon. No, you know? I mean, it's dark yeah. that they had to pass around a hat yes. to pay for his casket, and he, he yeah. collapsed bump, begging for drinks in the bar yeah. he used to own. That's yep. dark. It is dark. It is, a, and again, a lot of these promoters are just straight up monsters. There are more of them who are kind of decent guys in this period. There are a number of like regional promoters who will do shit like when their wrestlers have health problems after retirement, divert funds from their business to like pay for their health care. I'm not saying that's the norm, but it does happen. And it's also, there is strong solidarity with kind of wrestlers where stuff like this is not the taking up collections to help old and injured wrestlers pay for medical treatment or pay for funerals that stuff happens with a significant degree of frequency in this period of time there is kind of this understanding that like you know this is a tough job we're all kind of going to destroy ourselves doing it and we have to have each other's back you know um so given the cultural values of the time good guys and bad guys in wrestling had to be very easy to separate on black and white tvs in the 1950s and 60s this often meant that your bad guys are going to be either communists or nazis right very easy way to you know, make it clear yeah exactly an early russian wrestler boris malenko was actually a jew from jersey named larry um but you know <laughs> he could do an accent that's, right that's also an extremely <laughs> common wrestling story yes yeah. yes <laughs> Uh, for example, the Sheikh of Araby, who prayed to Allah before each fight, was a Detroit native named Ed. Uh, and one of the first great Nazi wrestlers was Jack Adkisson, better known as Fritz von Erich. Now, yep. But again, he was guys, a real Nazi, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> the focus of this series is Vince McMahon, obviously. Okay. Um, you know, but wrestling is always traded on brutality and mortgaging human bodies for entertainment. And I don't want to just focus on the ways Vince did that, because that's going to give people this attitude, which is sometimes gets put across by like wrestling fans that like before Vince, things were a lot better. You know, some stuff was, no, but no, no, no. this has always been a pretty brutal business. Um, so we're going to talk for the rest of this episode about Fritz and the Von Erich family. You guys both had a reaction when I brought them up. So I think yeah. you might know this story. Oh, There's yeah. a lot of yeah. sadness in the Von <laughs> yeah. Erich story. It's uh, really, <laughs> really tragic. It is a nightmare. Yeah. Um, so Fritz slash Jack, and we're just going to call him Fritz from now on, had been trained by the founder of one of the first great wrestling dynasties, Stu Hart, uh, a Canadian from Edmonton whose dungeon, that's what it's called, the dungeon, was the most celebrated training center for wrestlers of its day and for like generations to come. This is like, they remain very big. Um, Bret Hart, we talked about a little bit earlier, is like one of his kids and, you know, trains there. Um, Hart trained fit, uh, Fritz and gave him his stage name. And you might think that having your like mentor be like, hey, 
You've got serious Nazi vibes to me. Why don't you wear a fucking swastika into the ring? Well, would it make you reconsider aspects of your life? But Fritz is so. like, yeah, man, for sure. That sounds great. <laughs> he you, would you wrestle. Pay me how much? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. $50 a night for sure, bro. Yeah. <laughs> Fritz would wrestle wearing Nazi regalia. Um, his trademark move was the Iron Claw, and he has the distinction of having been wrestling Lou Thez, who we've talked about before. He's kind of one of the big, great big early champions. He and Thez are wrestling the day that JFK gets assassinated. Um, there's not as much great footage of him in the ring uh, as Related? I like. Related? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, definitely a causal relation. Um, <laughs> there's not as much great footage of him as I'd like, but I found a clip of his brother, Waldo Von Eric. Eric. Waldo's not his real brother. This is a kayfabe thing, right? They, Waldo is another guy who trains at the dungeon, and they're like, you know, match brothers. And Waldo was also a Nazi. This clip is from a, uh, a match in 1975, and it is remarkable. I should note before we start that his opponent here is Jay Strongbow, uh, who is mm. a, a Native American wrestler who wrestles in a full headdress. He's actually an Italian. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, not an uncommon story. <laughs> so here's a, here's Here's Waldo von Erich being a Nazi. And as he comes in the ring, he is wearing a stall helm, I should note. Boy, he sure is. Yeah, he is, he is wearing a Nazi helmet and yeah. a uh, sleepless shirt. Uh, he's got a writing crop in his hand. And he's got, in the front of his shirt, is a, there's a Nazi logo. Like the okay. uh, Nazi but like, eagle one. Here comes shirt. the Italian man in the native headdress. <laughs> and then there's the Italian man yeah. in the headdress. Chief J. Strongbow. Mm-hmm. The pride of uh, from, from, from Tuscany. I, <laughs> I, old-timey wrestlers, I do love the, the gay-coded fancy man and yeah. the, the Indian chief are like my yeah. two favorite like problematic mm-hmm. characters. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You get some... I love... Yeah. I love that Waldo's swastika. You can tell they weren't into drawing it. I also love, you know, steroids are starting to be a thing in the 70s, but they haven't figured them out great. So these guys are just huge dudes with beer bellies. Oh, he's doing Wait, a, a Nazi yeah, salute. The yeah. Nazi there salute. was. Oh, there was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, so, the Iron Claw, if the audience doesn't know, is kind of like a Nazi salute on the human face. You just you put, <laughs> you grab the front of their head and you just squeeze it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, Glorious. Impossible to escape. I mean, yeah. Palming someone on the face, yeah. Just yeah, uh, how do you get out of that? Just rough. You could just walk rough. backwards to the mm-hmm. side. No one thinks of that. Mm-mm. No, mm. no. You're when you get when you get Sig Heiled right in the forehead, you, you mm-hmm. sort of like it knocks all thoughts out of your brain. That's, so you're like, what do right. I do? That's why Hitler adopted it. Famous, famously great technical wrestler Adolf Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> so. I will know everything he knows. It's actually how he took himself out. He 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 just did the iron claw to himself. This match between Jay Strongbow and Waldo problematic. Not even close to the most racist wrestling match that that you can find. Like, like oh, it's not even decided, the most ra- decidedly mid. <laughs> it's not even the most racist wrestling match I've seen recently. No, yeah, that bounced right off my brain. If you hadn't yeah. told me, yeah. hey, we're we're looking at this and for racism, I would have been like, this is totally normal old timey wrestling. <laughs> yeah, at least the Nazi's supposed to be the bad guy. <laughs> a Nazi and an Indian chief. Honestly, they're doing pretty good. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so uh, Fritz himself has a, as we've discussed, as we're, yeah, just, just a nightmare of a life, um, but because he's a terrible person. So uh, his, you know, his first son, this is not his fault, probably, Jack Jr. dies in 1959 from accidental electrocution that leads to drowning. Um, obviously, uh, it, this has an impact on Fritz, and he decides to stop wrestling on the East Coast. Uh, as kind of a result of this, he becomes the godfather of Texas wrestling, overseeing a company that runs wrestling in Dallas, Houston, and San Antonio called World Class Wrestling. Uh, Fritz continued to re- or reinvested the money that he made from wrestling into real estate. He's one of the guys in this who's actually like good with his money, and while he's making it as a wrestler, puts it into something that's going to make him more money. Um, unfortunately, he's also a giant piece of shit and kind of a real fascist because one of his best friends is Pat Robertson. Uh, he is a born-again Christian who becomes a major right-wing donor in Texas and a moral crusader. Um, so that's great. Uh, Sweet. Yeah, good guy. So he has four sons, uh, three of whom are four more sons, three of whom at least are groomed to follow in his footsteps, even though several of them lack the talent or the physique to do so. Spoilers, uh, when you said three of whom, I thought you were going to say something else. Yeah. Uh, I, <laughs> that's where we're going, more Tommy. <laughs> than electrocuted and drowned. Uh-huh. We're starting so, with electrocuted he's, he's and drowned at the same time. He's down one boy so far, sadder. right? Yeah. He's got he's he's one out one of fives son. already out of the match. Um, Did you so, do a show on Pat Robertson? Uh, we've covered him before. We've covered okay. a lot of aspects of him, yeah. Uh, his dream was to create a wrestling dynasty in imitation of Stu Hart, right? Uh, and as <laughs> wait, 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 Pat nerd- Robertson's? <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, no, maybe, but definitely, Fritz. definitely Fritz. Um, and as wrestling nerd Nicholas Allhelm writes, by the time Kevin, David, and Carrie, his three uh, large adult sons, entered their teens, they were put into grueling workout sessions by their father. Despite time uh, playing a variety of junior high and high school sports, he would work them out for another three hours after school every day. While the boys grew up in wrestling and knew wrestling, it was clear that their father wanted to make it clear they didn't have a choice. Their future was wrestling, whether they wanted it to be or not. Cool. Yeah, so, you know, he's kind of like the Michael Jackson of wrestling, uh, or Michael Jackson's dad of wrestling, I should say. I always always forget that guy's name. Joe Joe Jackson. Jackson. Right, Joe Jackson. Um, But maybe, like, honestly, Joe Jackson's a better dad, uh, which is, (laughs) like, that. that's a a heads up as to where this is going. (laughs) Um, Only one of his kids are dead. Yeah. (laughs) It's like a really dark, like... 2000s era joke punchline. Joe Jackson's a better dad. I mean, (laughs) he's got a better fucking record. So, for a time, the Von Erichs are very successful. In the early 1980s, his boys are all actively in the ring. They are hugely popular in Texas. By this point in kayfabe, Fritz has been revealed by his nemesis Gary Hart to have been a normal Texas boy, not a Nazi allowing him to turn babyface. This made kayfabe a little easier for his boys because they didn't have to wear sweaters. But since their dad is the booker and they're the stars, he gets to run them mercilessly, right? The entire company is, because these guys are big stars, their entire company is reliant upon them performing basically every night during parts of the year in order to keep attendance high at the venues that he booked. Because they're such a necessary part of the business when they get hurt, which happens a lot, they can't take the next night off. So dad just starts handing them fucking painkillers like they're Skittles in order to keep them performing. Uh, Another thing that's it's like, a, it's, like a it's like a band-aid. And, and we'll go back when we talk more about Vince. We'll talk about how steroids become a part of the industry. But steroids are a big part of the industry by the uh, the 1980s. And so in order to compete and, again, to keep crowds, butts in seats, they have to bulk up to Hulk Hogan-like levels. And the drugs that they're taking 
take a toll on these boys' bodies. And after a 1984 match in Japan, David Von Erich is found dead in his hotel room at age 25. Um... We don't entirely know what happened. His friend Bruiser Brody claimed once that they flushed a bunch of drugs down the toilet after finding his body and basically that he OD'd. I think the family denies this. It's not really clear what happened because after he makes this claim, Bruiser Brody gets stabbed to death in Puerto Rico. Uh, He sure does. We don't get a lot of detailed confirmation either way. Is there a reasonable like counter explanation? It's like, oh, he's not really. A bunch of drugs. (laughs) Not not really. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's the okay. kind of thing where, like, uh, you know, today, like, any leading man and stuff who's doing big action roles is on s- something that we can call steroids, pretty much. Sure. But also, we've gotten a lot better at doing it without killing people, which is not, I'm not saying people should do steroids, but if you have millions of dollars and doctors who are constantly monitoring your blood levels and doing tests on you and stuff, it's not as dangerous. Like, these guys are just kind of well, shot, shooting shit up their asses and seeing what happens, you know? It's right. a combination of things, too. You know, the road, it's, it's all the hard drinking and popping painkillers. Yeah, you take you can't a go to the doctor. Cock. Yeah. You just have to keep going mm-hmm. like yeah i think they tour something like i don't know 300 yeah. days a year um yeah so it's a it's a combination of all that shit yeah yeah it's it's just it's a different time and it's even again don't do don't do steroids folks but it's even much worse for you at this point in time even um and yeah they're also coke is as common as roids are because i mean it, part of what a lot of wrestlers say is that like yeah you know in order to get into the ring and get amped up you got to get fucking coked up um and then to calm down and to deal with the pain you take painkillers and then often to get to bed you add alcohol to that a lot of guys od as a result of that shit. I mean, know, but, it's yeah. never, I, I mentioned Ultimate Warrior earlier, but never has you need cocaine to get hyped up for oh, the yeah. match been, been more obvious than an no. Ultimate Warrior entrance. <laughs> no, there there are there are like cult, cartel warehouses in fucking Sinaloa that have less cocaine than was in his bloodstream any given like, night. Like He was gliding <laughs> out there on a, on a board of cocaine like yeah. Iceman. <laughs> Just an incredible man. Just... Um, <laughs> So, uh, very tragic death. Obviously, fucking 25. He'd barely, you know, had a life. Uh, Very sad. Uh, The Yellow Rose of Texas, as David was known, was mourned by a crowd of 3,000 people at his memorial service. Uh, Fritz, though, made sure to profit from this, selling color photos of his dead son that had once gone for $3 for $10 at the memorial service. Hell yeah. Right after he set one of his surviving sons, Carrie Von Erich, to wrestle Ric Flair for the world title. Because kind of everybody's sorry, you know, because David died, uh, they set it up so that Kerry, you know, wins this match, right? Which is, again, mm-hmm. not uncommon in a case like this. You've got someone I'm, whose brother just died. I'm, you give them a belt, you know. I'm yeah. surprised, like, <laughs> Fritz didn't open up the casket and let people take pictures with David for, like, 20 <laughs> bucks or something. Cut off hair. Bucks. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. 35, you get a fingers. lock of his yeah. hair. Yeah. 30 bucks. <laughs> So the what, do you got, what do you got? Year. Let me see your money. Let me see your money. <laughs> right, Bare, it's it's barely better than that. Tom. <laughs> yeah, all right. Get up it's there. forty for a thumb. It's forty for a thumb. That guy took a thumb. Get the extra ten bucks. The, uh, don't don't let that dude leave. The next one, year in 1985, <laughs> Mike Von Erich was charged with two counts of misdemeanor assault against an ER doctor he got into a fist fight with during a trip to the hospital. Shortly mm-hmm. thereafter, he goes to Tel Aviv to wrestle, and he takes a bad bump to his shoulder that dislocates it bad en- badly enough that it requires surgery. Oof. Due to either poor hygiene or bad luck, after surgery, he contracts toxic shock syndrome, which Oof. is very serious and very uncommon, just like in general – 
it's not something men get off and it's certainly not a common side effect of shoulder surgery. Um, he gets transferred to a hospital with 105 degree fever and his kidneys shutting down. The upside of this Jesus. is that he is too weak to punch another doctor. So that might have helped. <laughs> so the outcome. doctor lived through that. <laughs> so the doctor mm-hmm. survived and he does. Uh, and while his son is fighting to survive, Fritz starts like making, he goes to the press basically, you know, never waste an opportunity. He tells uh, the media that the number of calls from fans to the hospital outnumbers the calls that a neighboring hospital had received when JFK was sent there in 1963, oh which is an insane flex. That's a, that's a real <laughs> If anybody wants a bag of bloody stool, 70 bucks. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure my, I'm sure yeah, you get in there. Yeah. <laughs> it's a real, it's real, it's real Trump saying now yeah. I have the tallest building in New York yeah. City. Yeah, it's it's wild stuff. Yeah. Uh, Mike do, uh, his, Mike does pull through. He survives this, uh, and his brother Kevin gives a press conference calling his survival a miracle. Alas, he takes he's permanently injured from this, right? Uh, his weight drops down to just 145 pounds. He is now lo- no longer able to speak without slurring his voice. Um, mm. He just, like, he, he doesn't recover from this. Uh, Muchnik writes, quote, Fritz lost no time in repackaging him for the wrestling marks. Mike was nicknamed the Living Miracle. Fans were promised that he would defeat the odds, wrestle again, and claim a championship for God and family. To give the gimmick momentum, Mike was wheeled out in a car to wave to the 25,000 fans at the Big Oct October show at the show at the Cotton Bowl. He made his official return to the ring on July fourth, nineteen eighty six. By then, you, you want to kiss him? You want to kiss him? Sixty bucks. <laughs> <laughs> so when he comes back to the ring, he's also contracted hepatitis, oh and his dad's just, just like, "Get him out there! Get Christ. him out there!" Yeah, it's it's so bad. Go, sh- go um, share some blood with that fella. <laughs> yeah. So the next year, 1986, another prominent wrestler, Gino Hernandez, dies of a cocaine overdose. Uh, now, this happens right after a TV spot where Hernandez, a heel, had blinded babyface wrestler Adams. And it says a lot about wrestling in this period that the announcer, Bill Mercer, Fritz's employee, announced Gino's real-life death on television by saying, We have suffered two terrible tragedies in the last week, the blinding of Chris Adams and the death of Gino Hernandez. Does. <laughs> equally like, uh, equally blinding these and are, a real these are, <laughs> these are equivalent tragedies yeah, thanks to kayfabe they're the same thing <laughs> so the next year carrie von eric wasted as hell rams into the back of a police car on his mer- motorcycle uh his foot is like part of his foot it winds up oh. eventually getting amputated it is a yeah. nasty wreck doctors spend 13 hours putting his limb back together and then he is immediately whisked away to perform in the fuck ring my God. um yeah it's a nightmare uh Is i'm gonna he, go, didn't he rest he wrestles with a fake foot for a while doesn't he yeah he sure does tom he sure fucking does Man. um I'm, I'm gonna quote again from Nick here <laughs> sorry fritz is just smashing these kids to pieces. like again when, joe jackson might be the better dad i'm just <laughs> <laughs> Quote, his opponent this evening was carefully instructed to sell for Carrie, for it was clear in advance that the man who was once among the most agile 250 pounders in wrestling would be virtually immobile. Still, they had to make a good show of it. So while Carrie changed into his trunks, a doctor filled a syringe with enough Novocaine to numb Secretariat's hoof. Thus fortified, Carrie discarded his crutches, gritted his teeth, and hobbled into the ring. The match yeah. lasted five minutes, and as planned, Carrie won. Afterwards, when the Novocaine wore off, an examination revealed that the ankle had rebroken four months later in another operation the foot was permanently fused into a walking position like 
Oh, that's bad, that's bad right. dad. Don't think of the chronic pain that dude must have had. Like his calf must just cramp up 20 times yeah. a day. Now, look, I'm not a big giving people parenting advice, but uh, free parenting advice from Robert here. Don't do this to your kid. Yeah. <laughs> don't do this. Not good. Not good. Not good being a dad. Um, yeah. When my daughter got her foot, her first foot torn off, I was sure. like, we're going to wait two weeks before you get back in that. Yeah, right, two solid weeks because you're yeah. a good father. Absolutely. Yeah. I do yeah. my best. So despite Fritz's the cocaine pushing, helped. I, yeah, the co- I mean, well, yeah, of course. Helped Kids love cocaine. You know, you just tell them it's one of those uh, fun, fun bag. What do they, what do they call that shit? Fun dip. You know, they love that fun. shit. God, that'd be good. A fun dip bag of cocaine. That's what and, I'm going to have after we get <laughs> Fun dip has my mouth numb. I can't taste it anymore. That means it's working. Keep taking it. Good fun dip. Get in that ring. <laughs> That's probably how it got the name. That probably was originally yeah. a cocaine product. So, uh, despite Fritz's pushing, Mike never recovers his ability to f- perform. Obviously, yeah. uh, interviews with him were deeply uncomfortable affairs. Again, he is probably takes some damage to his brain from all this too. Uh, he rants a lot on air about obscure biblical figures. He also like there's one point where he's there's this documentary or something being made about him, and he and uh, one of his brothers are like talking in the background and it's like recorded and you can hear them talking about a gangbang that they had together. He just kind of loses his ability to sort of, you know, filter stuff. Uh, He also has in several minor violent outbursts, he's arrested a handful of times, mostly for drugs. This kind of all escalates to Mike going back home after an arrest. He hikes out into the woods with a bottle of sleeping pills and he takes enough to kill himself. Uh, He is 23 years old when he dies. Now, According to some versions of the story, Mike leaves a bottle of the sleeping pills he'd used to kill himself for his youngest brother, Chris, with a note that basically says, when you're ready to go, you can use these. Now, Chris has not performed yet in the ring, um, but he takes to the ring in 1990, kind of near the end of his father's time as a wrestling baron. Nicholas Onhelm write, or Allhelm writes, Chris grew up with severe asthma. He took prednisone for the condition from a young age, and this resulted in a smaller stature than even his brother Mike. His bones were brittle, and he broke them doing simple wrestling moves. He wasn't built to be a wrestler, but David and Mike were dead, and Kerry had taken a job in WWF. His family needed him. Already addicted to pain killers and recreational narcotics. He entered the family business. Um, he is not in there long. He shoots himself in the head one year later. Oh my God. Um, yeah. In 1993, the last survival f- surviving wrestling Von Erich, Kerry, is arrested for cocaine possession in Dallas. The horrific pain from his foot, which had required partial amputation, pushed him into a semi-permanent state of drug abuse. Uh, after being indicted, he drove home to Denton County and his father's ch- ranch, where he shot himself in the chest with a 44 caliber revolver. He made it the longest of any of his brothers. Uh, he was 33. Um, Fritz would, in the end, outlive five of his, sorry, he has six sons, one of them does survive him. Uh, he dies of lung cancer in 1997, and good fucking riddance. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> yeah. That like, man carved uh, a, a, just a path of yeah. ruin through his sons. And if I'm understanding right, this is all just to frame Vince McMahon. Just to <laughs> yes, be like, okay, is- here's the guy who's much worse than this. <laughs> yeah, Vince, Vince is overall worse than this, <laughs> but you do need to know. It's not like it, he's not rising out of a crowd of angels. <laughs> <laughs> um, Good God. Yeah. What a fucking, series of tragedies. Yeah, that's a nightmare. <laughs> when, when you are responsible for four of your son's deaths, um, 
All before the age of 40. Yeah, not a great dad. And three of them kill themselves. Yeah. Yeah. (sighs) That's that's dark. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty bleak. You guys uh got anything to plug? Uh Tom, you go first. <laughs> oh, uh well. <laughs> for for seventy five dollars you can take some of his hair. <laughs> for eighty bucks I'll let you hold the gun. Um <laughs> oh my God. Uh, I like how you fuck. I like how you paused. You're like, am I really gonna say this? Should, should, yeah, I, yeah. should I go for this? <laughs> yes, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. You know what? Fritz would have done it. Yeah, yeah Fritz yeah. would have done it. Um, yeah, you know, you can catch me over at Gamefully Unemployed. Uh, it's a podcast and streaming network great. I do with our, our former Cracked co-worker and, and great buddy David Bell. So check mm-hmm. that out. Patreon.com slash Gamefully Unemployed. You can find us also on anywhere you look yeah. for podcasts and on the social medias. That's that's pretty much it. Hell yeah, it is. Absolutely. Beautiful and, stuff. Uh, I'm at 1900hotdoc.com mm-hmm. featuring monthly columnist Tom Ryman. Mm-hmm. Who's yeah. great and a lot an all star cast of comedy writers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do daily jokes, uh, text, and pictures like the old days, and it's fantastic. Uh, I work with Robert Brockway, who's also our dear friend from Cracked, mm-hmm. and uh, Patreon.com slash one nine hundred hot dog. Mm-hmm. Um, That's my plug. Excellent. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Definitely check out Gamefully Unemployed and One Nine Hundred Hot Dog. I have one other thing to plug. Uh, this is not a, a product, a project of mine, but. We will be talking, you know, Sean, in our in our episode on Steven Seagal, we chat a little bit about Judo Jean LaBelle, who, according to some versions of the story, choked Steven out pants. so badly he pooped his pants. Now, mm. this is debated, but there is a fellow on YouTube named Bobby Fingers. Uh, Bobby is an Irish man who works, does something in the entertainment industry, like making practical effects and models. Um I can't describe his videos better than like he makes models of moments from pop culture history. And one of the things he does and these I you should just watch them. I can't describe them better. But one of the ones he builds is a diorama of uh, Judo Jean and Steven Seagal locked in combat. Um, Go find Bobby Fingers on YouTube and watch this shit. It's genius. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. I'm writing this down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the fucking episode, everybody. (laughs) Didn't even get to Vince. Not, I mean, a little bit. Yeah. It's such a, it's such a, already such a long road, road strewn with bodies before we even get (laughs) so many men have died. (laughs) And we've just, we've only just begun. (laughs) (laughs) Behind the Bastards is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? 
And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wooden! But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.